Welcome to today's podcast, The Outlook for Doing Business in India, Cautiously Optimistic. India is the seventh largest economy in the world. However, the World Bank Group ranks at number 77 out of 190 economies for ease of doing business, well behind Russia at number 35 and the U.S. at number 6. Structural reforms introduced by the Modi government over the past four years, however, have sought to improve the business environment for companies in the region. These include raising FDI caps across a host of different sectors and the implementation of the uniform tax system. Observers are cautiously optimistic as these programs are digested and various projects begin to bear fruit. Despite these changes, long-standing challenges continue to create vulnerabilities for companies doing business in India. Inadequate structural reforms, a looming trade war with the U.S., and continued corruption have all injected uncertainty into India's business environment. In today's podcast, Rain's founder, David Lawrence, sits down with Ronak Desai, Vice Chair of the India Practice at Steptoe & Johnson, a prominent international law firm based in Washington, D.C. A recognized practitioner in the fields of law and foreign policy, his work focuses on anti-corruption, U.S.-India relations, and other India-related commercial and strategic issues. At Steptoe, Ronick advises clients on a broad range of complex investigative, regulatory, compliance, and public policy matters. He has experience conducting FCPA, anti-corruption, export control, and other types of investigations on behalf of individual and multinational clients around the world, in addition to developing appropriate anti-corruption compliance policies and procedures across a wide range of industry sectors. And with that, I'll turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David? Okay. First of all, thanks for uh, doing this. and I've had, uh, obviously, the pleasure of working with you on a variety of different uh, transactions, different contexts, and um, both uh, before uh, entering the government service and afterwards. So, first of all, thank you for joining. Uh, let me start with the first question, uh, which uh, many people in the audience will be focused on is, you know, basically, can you give us a uh, an overview of the investment environment uh, in India uh, for multinational uh, corporations and a general sense of sort of what is happening in India now that is very different than what has been occurring in the past few years. Sure. And let me perhaps take uh, that second question first. And again, thanks for having me, David. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, with respect to what's, what's happening differently now has occurred to in the past, I think what we're seeing for the first time in a very long time uh, is the Modi government, which swept into power roughly four years ago or so, they made the transformation of India's investment and business climate a central pillar of its of its campaign. And what the Modi government has endeavored to do is really welcome business and multinational corporations to the country. What the Prime Minister has said in the past is that they're going to now cut red tape and really roll up the red carpet for businesses and make it as easy as, it, as they can for, for businesses to come and to really set up shop in India. And what we saw prior to the Modi government is while previous administrations have really tried their best to make India a good, a good destination for investment, it's, it's a place that's been mired by a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of regulation, um, and Modi government's really, again, endeavored to try to change that by saying, look, this is a place where companies from all over the world can come and, and really set up shop. 
In terms of what the investment climate looks like right now, um, I still think that companies from around the world, depending on what sector they're in, uh, have an opportunity to come in and really take advantage of some of the new regulations that the Modi administration has unveiled, take advantage of the fact that they've increased some of the foreign direct investment caps, and, and more so than anything else, really take advantage of the fact that India is now amongst the fastest growing economies in the world and, and has amongst one of the largest middle classes in the world. It's, it's perhaps the biggest consumer market um, anywhere, and it's, it's growing every day. And, and this is a real opportunity for, for multinationals to come in and, and take a piece of that pie. That's a great overview. And maybe you can give uh, the audience some examples of uh, sort of how the red carpet is now rolled out uh, and the red tape has been rolled back. Specific industries, specific regulations. Sure. So, you know, from a structural perspective, you know, one of the things that they've tried to do, the Modi government, um, is, again, one of the things that I just mentioned, which is increase foreign direct investment caps um, across various sectors. And we're seeing that in defense and telecom, um, insurance and pension. You're, we're really starting to see foreign direct investment flow into the country. Now, those levels have ebbed and flowed over the past four years um, for a whole host of different reasons. But for the most part, we're, you know, we're confident that trend lines are moving um, in the right direction. Another thing that they've done is brought inflation under control. And what we had seen under the previous government um, was inflation was something that had really, really gotten out of hand. And it was a huge deterrent for, for businesses to come in. And this is something that, again, the Modi government focused on and was able to effectively uh, bring under control over time. Um, deficits were another area where the the new government has been able to, again, make some progress. Um, we're starting to see as elections get closer and closer that, again, deficits may begin to rise. But as an overall percentage of GDP, it's something that they've been able uh, to bring down relative to years past. And I think, again, these are, all, these are all good signs that are moving in the right direction. Companies that are, uh, international companies that are thinking about doing business in India, but also other markets, always think about the importance of a strategic, having a strategic in-country partner to work with. Do you have any particular perspectives on uh, that vantage point. Sure. Having an in-country partner, depending on the sector, and, and whether you're in hospitality, whether you're doing financial services, technology, um, you know, these are all different areas that are experiencing and, and, and really witnessing real growth in India. I think having a partner on the ground can make a difference. And the reason I say that is because India is a market unlike any other, and this is true for a lot of other jurisdictions, not just in Asia, but around the world. Understanding the culture there, understanding how the country actually operates, understanding the importance of relationships, having the actual right relationships, and but also being you know acutely aware of, of, of some of the again important constraints and regulations, not just in the United States or in the home country, but also in India, is very important. And I think for that reason, having a partner that has gone through the appropriate due diligence, someone that's been vetted properly, but again, someone that really understands the country. Uh, can play a huge role in helping a business not just get itself established in the right way, but really grow um, and become a, a meaningful player um, in that respective landscape. Okay, so as we talk about, you know, there is a difference between 
direct investments and as many companies have thought about India as, you know, possibly an outsource model for, you know, some of their operations and support services. Direct investment is a whole different game. And whether it's in technology, pharmaceuticals, I would argue that, you know, some very, very interesting work is being done around alternative energy and natural resources. How do you begin to unpack how um, investors should think about the opportunities for direct investment or, you know, potentially for actually locating actual uh, corporate operations in India? A large part of that question is going to be governed by what the needs are. I mean, direct investment, again, given the fact that trend lines are moving in the right direction, given the fact that there are compelling reasons just to do certain FDI investments, depending on the sector, whether it's, again, defense. Um, you mentioned, I think, a couple of others. I think, you know, there's there's reasons to do that. When companies think about whether they should be investing versus whether they should be setting up operations, I think, is something that's going to be governed, uh, you know, by the sector itself and what the respective consumer or client is going to need. Um, in some instances, take legal services, for example, Indian law prohibits foreign and, and U.S. and EU law firms from actually setting up shop in India. And yet there's a number of ways that American law firms can collaborate with their Indian counterparts. The Supreme Court of India, for example, has, has put out new rules called fly in, fly out, where U.S. lawyers can come in, you know, do a certain amount of prescribed work and then fly right back out. What they're unable to do is actually set up an office there, set up a presence there, have an actual footprint. And depending on what one sector is, hospitality, for example, is one that's really proliferated in recent years. Um, even if you go to the most remote city in India, you're seeing some of the most well-known uh, brands there who, who have set up and have really begun to have robust operations. Um, depending on, one, if there's a need, and, two, whether or not the Indian market is the right place to do that, um, of course, is an assessment that's going to vary industry by industry. But, you know, e-commerce is another one. There was a time not too long ago, for example, just maybe seven or eight years ago, companies like Walmart and others really wanted to be a part uh, of the e-commerce wave that had hit India because they were unable to set up shop physically despite their best efforts. Um, what's happening now is the Amazons of the world and others are beginning to, to really compete with companies like Flipkart um, that, are, that are indigenous to India um, and are, are having a pretty good time there in terms of getting some market share and growing. Walmart's actually, in terms of the retail space, has set up, set up shop, has set up a physical a physical location, but they're also trying to now enter the online game itself. So part of what companies need to do moving forward is really be able to look at India and, and one, recognize, I think, two important facts. One is that things are not static there. Things change all the time, and even under the most challenging circumstances, uh, the environment will change over time, and, and for the most part, the government, as well as the private sector in India, is trying to do the right thing and recognize that foreign companies coming in um, increase competition and increase quality overall. I think the second thing to, to recognize is that this is a, a time-sensitive endeavor. Any company, any industry, any sector that's interested in getting involved in India, regardless of what capacity, should be prepared to get involved in the long haul. This is not a jurisdiction where you can be there on day one and expect to capture a market share on day two. As long as companies are willing to make that time investment and, and, and really be prepared to be there in the long haul, uh, I think they'll start seeing returns over time. Let me um, approach what 
the big issue, I'll call it in, in some respects, it, it, you know, the elephant in the room, that as companies um, try to navigate uh, markets that are still developing, and India obviously is a, a, a market with tremendous potential, uh, the concerns companies have uh, concerning the corruption risk, and part of that is engendered uh, by bureaucracies and various um, government officials who, you know, may be used to a different a different marketplace in terms of the practice. And then U.S., U.K., Western companies come in. They have to navigate this, and they have to worry about compliance issues. They have to worry about corruption issues. They have to worry not so much uh, about bidding on government contracts so much as getting the permits, the licenses that they need, uh, inspections that have to be passed and obviously registration documents and things like that. How are you advising uh, your clients uh, around the corruption risk and I guess more importantly, what has actually changed uh, since Mr. Modi has uh, taken office? Right, and again, let me take that second question first because in many ways it's the easier one to answer. So. With respect to what's changed, what, we're, what we've seen over the past four years is the conspicuous absence of the type of multi-billion dollar corruption scandals that appear to have characterized the predecessor government. And what we saw prior to 2014 was just one mega scandal after the other uh, that was really draining the public, the public treasury. And part of the reason that the, the incumbent government was thrown out and, and the prime minister, the current prime minister was, was swept into power was because he, he promised to, to clean things up. And to his credit, for the most part, we have not seen the same type of corruption scandal characterize his administration um, that we saw with the previous government. Now, that being said, even though we're not seeing these, again, these multi-billion dollar scandals uh, that were so ubiquitous previously, what we do still witness uh, in the country is this low-level chronic corruption. Police officers asking for bribes when they pull you over. Um, what you would just mention in terms of, you know, getting, securing licenses, securing permits, things of that nature, uh, there's still corruption accompanying those types of endeavors. And the reality is that it's unlikely to go anywhere. Uh, it's unlikely that that type of low-level persistent corruption um, is going to suddenly disappear, and companies seeking to conduct operations in India or who are currently conducting operations in India should be acutely aware of this. Now, what I tell clients who are, again, doing business in India or thinking about it is this is, one, a fact of life. Uh, this is something that it's likely that someone is going to encounter, that a company is going to encounter on a day-to-day -day basis in some incarnation on the other. And the second thing I tell them, it's still possible to be prepared. It's still possible to implement a robust and dynamic compliance program uh, that preserves fidelity not just to U.S. and EU anti-corruption laws, uh, but also, also in India as well. And I think part of that is, again, being realistic about the types of corruption risks that India poses. Um, it's being cognizant of the fact that, again, this is an unfortunately inevitable part of life. And it's three, then being being acutely aware that it's, it's critically important for every company, regardless of what sector they're in, regardless of what industry that they're in, to really architect a compliance program that's custom-tailored to their respective enterprise 
and to make sure that that compliance program is being fully implemented and adequately executed once they're in India. And there are various elements to a compliance program like that, but I think recognizing that there is a risk at the outset is perhaps the most important first step. So while it's uh, great to recognize that, what's interesting, and you and I have worked on a variety of matters, there is the market reality, um, and there is being able to tell companies to continue to expect this on on various levels. Uh, But there is not necessarily that same understanding amongst U.S., U.K., Western authorities uh, who regulate uh, various companies that are doing business or have jurisdictional reach over various companies doing business in India. And while individually these, you know, requests for payments or, or, or the making of payments seem insignificant, obviously we know that cases are built on a cumulative record that sometimes can transpire over years, and then it becomes something significant. How do you bridge, you know, in terms of the advice you give to companies, how do you bridge the gap between, you know, this is what you absolutely are going to continue to confront and have to deal with, and, you know, we can put compliance measures around this, um, but if you're going to operate if you a business, it's, it's a constant risk. And the fact that, you know, regulators, at least in the West, don't necessarily provide a grace period or any kind of safe harbor or, you know, what I'll refer to as protection for companies that are trying to do the right thing in markets but nonetheless are, are, are being, you know, quite frankly, impeded in their efforts. Right. So, I think there's a lot there to unpack, but let's see if we can. I think the first thing here is you're absolutely right, that regulators and enforcement authorities here in the U.S. Um, and in the U.K., but, you know, the U.S. especially, are, are generally unsympathetic uh, to some of these market realities that companies are facing that are, that are facing abroad, particularly in high-risk jurisdictions like India or like China, parts of Africa and the Middle East. And that's something that we emphasize to clients over and over, that, Enforcement authorities here in the U.S. are, are cognizant of this. They're, they're incredibly focused on this. Any expectation that anti-corruption enforcement under the Trump administration was going to somehow go down or lessen has not happened. And ultimately, it's incumbent upon a company to ensure that they're doing the best that they can to have a compliance program in place uh, that helps mitigate some of those risks. Now, what we tell clients all the time is as these enforcement authorities have become increasingly aggressive, both in terms of their jurisdictional reach, but also in terms of the penalties that they're imposing, sometimes the magnitude of billions of dollars, that what that really means is that companies here in the U.S. have to be aware of what's happening on the ground, whether it's in India or some other some other country. And, and based on the enforcement actions that have taken place, particularly those ones, obviously, that are public, a lot of these enforcement actions are not, uh, with respect to settlements or deferred prosecutions. But the ones that are public, we're able to garner and discern some trends. Uh, what we've seen, for example, over the past few years is that the government will give credit in those instances where companies have tried to do the right thing, that if they found out that there was a problem or a potential problem early on or at some point in their operations, that they've worked immediately to take prophylactic measures that can, again, somehow mitigate the risk or mitigate the, the potential issue. The other thing that we've seen enforcement authorities do um, is give credit for having compliance programs already in place. Uh, the companies that tend to be the most vulnerable and that tend to, again, have the hardest time 
with regulators or the ones that had absolutely no framework in place whatsoever, or if they had one, was clearly so ineffective and so anemic uh, that it was, it was a paper tiger. Those companies that have endeavored to try to do the right thing, that have demonstrated a track record of, of being thoughtful, a track record of, 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 of being aware that these risks exist, even if the program in those instances aren't 100% effective and there is some issue, enforcement authorities have actually been, been known to say, look, we recognize the fact that there's some effort that has been put into this, so let's see if we can really work together to figure out a, a solution or figure out an enforcement action that reflects that. And I think that's something that, again, we impress upon clients. You do not want to be reactive. You do not want to be in a situation where a compliance program and an anti-corruption program are being put in place after a problem has emerged, after you've gotten onto the radar of an enforcement authority. It's better to think about these issues and to think about these potential risks beforehand uh, and then work with regulators accordingly uh, to see what happens. But, again, the reality is that even if you do everything right, there's still going to be risk, and companies ultimately have to weigh the equities of operating in these jurisdictions um, and the potential value that doing so confers upon them uh, versus the corruption risk that it does entail. Now, again, I will say that, you know, over the last four years, things have, things have gotten better on the macroeconomic scale, uh, that as the Mobi government has tried to create an environment uh, that's more amenable to foreign companies coming in and, and beginning operations, uh, part of that also hopefully is reflected in the fact that some of the corruption risk itself will be commensurately mitigated as well. So let me press you just a little bit more because I know you're in the trenches, we're in the trenches with, with our clients. It is one thing to say, uh, look, this is about having an effective compliance program when you have a effective compliance program, the government goes easier and they they understand, et cetera. But the fact that the reality of life is nobody wants an investigation. Nobody wants to be in a position of compromise. Nobody wants to run up extraordinary legal bills in the defense of, uh, of actions. And uh, invariably, this becomes not only a, a tax, but, you know, how information you know, surfaces to the top, whether, you know, it's because there's effective internal reporting mechanisms, there's a whistleblower, there's a government informant, uh, the government starts an investigation with one company in the industry and finds some things, and then, you know, the investigation spreads to all other participants. The fact of the matter is, and, and, and you make the point, you know, directly, there are certain realities about operating in certain marketplaces, and, I'm, you know, we're just talking about India today, but, you know, the, let's stay, stay with this as an example, where someone with your experience uh, is clearly advising companies that you'll put in the program, et cetera, but there's still going to be some harsh realities that you will continue, you and your employees will continue to face. You may be moving supplies from one point to another. You may be trying to get uh, certain goods either into the country or outside the country. Inspectors may show up at your building and, and, and find all sorts of, um, you know, potential violations, and with that there's an, there's an ask. Or, you know, there's certain licenses that have to be filed and approved, uh, but it's not being done. And without going into the distinctions between a bribe and a facilitation payment, the real fact of the matter is companies do not want to do anything to engender an investigation, but they have to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so how do you begin to really allow companies to, without disrupting their operations, still maintain a um, – a compliant environment, 
And I'll, I'll compound my question by asking a very direct one, which is, is the Indian government doing enough in this regard? Is the U.S. government in its relationships with the Indian government doing enough to highlight this and try to see if there can be some cooperation and some adjustments to the marketplace? Right. So the issue about the U.S. government pressing its Indian counterparts, I think, is a salient one and one that's that's appreciated. I, I do think, and again, you know, we're not privy uh, to the exact tenor and nature of those conversations, but, you know, I'm, I'm confident and based on my time in the government before returning to private practice, that this is an issue that does arise. This is an issue, you know, at all levels, whether it's, you know, the Commerce Department, the State Department, the, you know, other other organs of the executive branch and pressing upon their counterparts of saying, look, this is an issue that is important to us. We want our businesses to go there. You want our businesses to go there and set up shop. This isn't just about the ease of doing business in terms of helping get a permit or helping get a license or, or allowing an inspection to take place. It's allowing those things to happen in a way that's transparent and allowing those things to happen in a way that, again, is lawful. And I know that even members of Congress, when they travel to India or they meet members of Parliament who come here to the U.S., that this is a topic of discussion that is raised. Now, one thing I will tell you uh, is since the new administration has come in, there is a question about whether that same commitment is there. Now, President Trump, for example, had criticized various anti-corruption laws in the past before he became president, yet at the same time, his Department of Justice and his SEC continues to enforce those laws aggressively uh, over the past two years, despite what he may have said in the past. And the reason I bring that up is because I've heard from folks in India who say, well, if, you know, it seems to us that your president's commitment uh, to enforcing some of these laws may be more tenuous than it was under some of his predecessors. So what does that mean for us? And, and how can we then press our government to do that? What I'll tell you is this, is that the Modi government at a national level, at the federal level, uh, is committed to this. Uh, he's spoken about corruption various times in the past, and again, anything that could potentially jeopardize his pro-business message, his his direct objective of attracting and garnering more business into India, anything that could jeopardize that, he is going to be against, and that includes corruption. Uh, it's not surprising, for example, that India's rankings in the Transparency International's Corruption Index has improved uh you know, somewhat since he became the prime minister. The real challenge, and this is the part that I believe is still lacking, is for every government official at every agency, whether it's a cabinet minister or, or some customs official who's working at the local level at a port of entry, for that person to also be able to internalize that message and realize that it's important uh, that there is nothing untoward that is going on. And I think in that sense, that is a message that the U.S. government must continue to, to really emphasize with the Indian government, but also the private sector here. You know, before the two governments of the United States and India became as close as they were, it was the private sector that was out far in advance of those people. The private sector has historically led U.S.-India ties. And what we do know is that some of the country's leading companies, companies that you and I have worked with and that we know very well, they enjoy very close relationships, not just with the government, but, of course, with their, account, their counterparts in the private sector. And I think that's a message that in many ways can become a lot more effective coming from them as the messengers and even coming from a member of Congress or from a cabinet official here in the U.S. And the reason I say that is because it's the private sector 
the companies, the multinationals, these captains of industries here in the U.S. Uh, that, again, have really been pioneers and are the ones that are most directly and, and, and most concretely impacted by the type of corruption risk that you and I are talking about. And I think for that reason, what I've really seen be efficacious in the past is that these companies going in and, and telling their own stories and letting government officials know and letting state ministers know and, and county officials know the kind of challenges and constraints they face because of some of these corruption risks uh, in India and other high-risk jurisdictions as well. Let me um, also switch gears just a little bit because um, India has enacted some new laws about, um, we'll call it safe harbors and self-reporting. Uh, are you seeing any sort of, I'll call it, uh, seismic changes in that regard as a result of the new laws? Not yet. We're starting to see some change. We're starting to see some impact. Um, what has traditionally happened in instances like this particularly with the kinds of changes that you've just described, uh, is that it takes some time to garner traction. And I think as, as the Indians themselves are still working through, uh, you know, how to, how to manage that, approach that, implement that, enforce that, those types of safe harbors and other provisions are ones that are, are still relatively recent phenomenon that they're still getting their arms around. And, you know, the key word here, again, is bureaucracy. Uh, the license raj was an epithet that was used to describe the Indian economy for so long, and, and it was really a, a shorthand for the, the type of Byzantine and, and, and just really stifling bureaucracy that we've seen uh, characterize the Indian economy for years. The Modi government and even its predecessors have really tried to change that by enacting new laws and by enacting new provisions. The real challenge for them is ensuring that whatever they are enacting is actually helping and not hurting. And, and part of what happens, you know, they say there's a thing in Sanskrit that's translated roughly to it, you know, it takes a long time for an elephant to turn. It's a very laborious and slow, slow process. I think we're going to say the same thing here, uh, but as, as more individuals, as more companies, both on the U.S. and Indian side, you know, garner increasing familiarity with these new laws, we'll start seeing uh, more of an impact than the gradual one that we've seen so far. Interesting. The term is that uh, takes time for an elephant to turn. Uh, the phrase in the United States is, you know, it takes a long time to turn a battleship. Okay, so but the point is uh, well taken. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me uh, raise an issue that has uh, been important to many of our clients, which uh, has to do with workplace standards. Um, in, increasingly, corporations, um, from a legal and reputational standpoint, are very, very focused on uh, a wide variety of reputational issues. Among them is the standards of workplace, I'll call it civility. In reality, it has to do with fair hiring practices, fair pay practices, um, making sure that the environment is free from harassment and sexual assaults, uh, et cetera. And as you are advising clients who are either investing in companies in India or are locating people to India or are, you know, building what I'll refer from the ground up, uh, new subsidiaries, et cetera, 
what advice are you giving them about differences in the culture and what advice are you giving in terms of how to think about these issues? No, that's a fantastic question, particularly given what's happening in the country right now. Look, you know, at, at a very fundamental level, every country is different, every culture is different. India specifically um, has been construed as having a very traditional and conservative culture. And what companies need to be cognizant of is, you know, it's one thing if they send their own employees over there, and if it's just their own employees that are going to be on the ground, that's one thing. If they have operations that inc uh, include local employees and have folks from India who are going to be joining uh, joining in some capacity, that's a different dynamic and a totally different framework. You know, first and foremost, use common sense. The things that are, are you know, blatantly inappropriate here in the U.S., uh, the same is going to be true in India. The same way that the, the United States is going through its Me Too movement, India is also witnessing and experiencing the same thing. And what we're seeing from the classical Indian music scene in India, which is very prominent, to Bollywood, to politics, to journalism, is you're seeing the same type of Me Too issues emerging uh, that had really you know, captivated the United States for so long, and it's something that we're still going through. And the reason I, I bring that up is it's against that background, um, in particular, that, that, that companies should be, should be sensitive and, and should be aware of what's appropriate and what's not. And, and to give you a concrete example, um, you know, when I was in the government, for example, all the folks that I worked with, we became friends outside of work. And that was because we had long hours and long days and you're in the trenches together. And when we'd come back to the office, we'd give each other hugs and say hello to each other and, 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 and whatnot. Doing something like that in India, depending on the company, depending on the employee, could or could not be appropriate. It's something that could be incredibly normal and incredibly unremarkable, or depending on the employee, him or herself, it could be construed in the wrong manner or it could actually be inappropriate. And what, what, I, what I mean to say here is that, you know, the awareness is what's going to matter the most. Um, it's better to ask, it's better to be acutely cognizant of your surroundings and the people that you're working with uh, to know what's appropriate moving forward. In, in Europe, for example, the one-cheek kiss or the, the two-cheek kiss very common, very ubiquitous. Not the case in India, for example. And particularly in Indian culture, uh, where women are venerated and the idea of, of, of the goddess is something that's a very potent and compelling concept in India, both culturally and religiously, uh, is something that, again, companies should be aware of in terms of their interactions and, and how, they, how they work moving forward. But I think the best advice that I, I can give and what I tell clients is, one, use common sense. Uh, two, be aware of, of, your, of your environment and of your interactions and of the culture. Every company is different. Every office is different. Every set of employees is different. Um, being a, a aware of that and understanding that inherently is what's going what's gonna to dictate uh, what's appropriate and what's not. And I think, you know, third and most importantly, ask if there are questions about appropriateness, about acceptable behavior, uh, the best way to really garner clarity on that is to ask to ensure that there is no confusion or no misunderstandings. And in some cases, the behavior is intentionally inappropriate. It's obviously egregious and blatant, but in a lot of cases, it's not. And what we're really trying to do, again, is to mitigate risks. And, and the best way to do that is really by asking and, and obtaining the requisite clarity moving forward.
And if I can uh, lead the witness uh, just a little bit on that, um, please. And you and you made you made the point around uh, you know other compliance efforts, having clear policies, procedures, and ownership of that issue is critical. And it's not just about the compliance with uh, Indian standards and customs, but increasingly global companies are under a global spotlight, and the practices of uh, in any jurisdiction can come under scrutiny. And we all know also how quickly these issues can be raised and raised into a flashpoint of, of controversy. That's exactly right, and I think I think what you've just articulated in, in, in the context that we're discussing is also applicable in a whole host of other contexts, um, whether it's corruption, whether it's appropriate behavior, whether it's standards of conduct generally. I think companies conducting business abroad, again, when you're talking about a program, policies, procedures, there's just certain elements that I've found to be somewhat universal as long as, again, they're, they're, they're applied properly and implemented effectively. And having a written policy, for example, is one of those elements. Having a written policy where someone, an employee, an executive, a board member can go back and refer to that clearly enumerates and articulates what the company's policy is on X. And whether that's, again, on corruption, on standards of conduct, whatever it may be, I think having a clear written exposition of those policies of what is permissible versus impermissible is absolutely critical. Um, I think after that, we'd have to talk about accountability. And, and in India, for example, and this is true, again, of other countries, especially in Asia, very hierarchical. And what ends up happening is you'll see, and I, I hear stories all the time about how they have policies and procedures in writing in place, but they don't apply to the top people in, in, in the organization. They're, they're effectively inapplicable to the highest echelons of the organization. And what I, what I tell clients is accountability and involvement by high-level company executives um, is absolutely necessary and critical. You need to be able to signal to your employees at all levels that the policies and procedures that you've put into place apply to everyone, not just to them. Um, the next one is training, right? And I, I, would, I would talk about training as, again, a, a very important separate component of any type of, of program because one thing to have it on paper, one thing to know that it applies to everyone, but are these employees or these individuals, whether they're expats coming to India or local employees themselves, are they able to actually understand what those policies and procedures mean in practice? Has there been the requisite training for them to understand what it is that the company is trying to communicate to them through that respective policy or procedure? Um, you know, a caveat to this, of course, is that the training, whether it's in person, online, the policies themselves, whether they're written, you know, whatever we're talking about should be in the local language. India is a country where English is one of the official languages. It's, I think, the largest English language speaking country in the world. Uh, but that being said, you know, again, from a risk mitigation perspective, making sure that you're conducting trainings, that you've written policies in local languages, depending on where you're based, uh, incredibly important. India has dozens of official languages, and I think for that reason alone, uh, again, tailoring it, customizing it to the jurisdiction in which you're operating uh, becomes very, very important. Um, the next element I'll talk about here is auditing and risk assessment. And again, this might matter more in the context of corruption than, than something like standards of conduct. But even then, you know, I'll, I'll tell 
clients that are operating in these in these countries, you want to make sure that you know what's going on. You want to make sure that you understand what's happening in the ground, and whether that means informal interviews with employees, whether it means, you know, periodic check-ins, periodic uh, uh, general engagement, you know, engagement by the various company executives, whether it's in the home country or in India, there needs to be some kind of process where you're auditing what's going on. In the corruption context, of course, you know, there's a whole host of mechanisms that go behind this. Um, but again, it's something that I think in, in many cases may not happen often enough. In, in my experience, the companies that have gotten themselves in trouble, they, they've done one through three, one through four correctly. What they didn't do was, was conduct these audits and conduct these interviews with the requisite amount of, of frequency uh, before, they, before they moved forward. Um, and look, I think, you know, the final, the final one or two, if I had to categorize them that way, one is enforcement, right? If there is going to be a problem, if there is some issue that arises, it's clear that someone has violated a code of conduct or violated a, a compliance protocol, there's got to be consequences for that. Uh, in, in countries abroad, and look, this is something that afflicts the U.S. as well. This is where culture really matters. The culture of the company in terms of the, the permissibility is something that will dictate that. But the, the clearest way to send a message and to serve, to serve as a deterrent uh, is to enforce the policies you have in place. Um, and I think those are, you know, the four or five elements that I think are the most important when we're talking about uh, some of the issues that we've been discussing for the past half an hour or so. So if I can uh, summarize, um, you have to walk the talk. You can't just talk the talk and uh, leadership by example. So these are important points. Uh, let me touch upon uh, two quick things in conclusion. Um, one has to do with um, accounting and the ability to rely on uh, audits of various private companies and public companies in India. Do you have any perspectives on the state of the audit industry? And keep in mind that um, once again, we are in a cycle where the conflicts of interest between audit and consulting are very much in the forefront of uh, a number of regulators around the world, particularly in the Western world. There have been audit failures in many, many different markets, um, significant, um, I'll call them financial scandals. And uh, because of the amount of investment activity in India, because India has certainly at least historically and even currently has not been immune from accounting um, scandals, including, you know, uh, brand names of the top uh, four audit firms uh, in the world. I'm just curious whether you have any perspectives on uh, how investors and uh, others should be thinking about the accounting standards, the enforcement of those accounting, accounting standards, and uh, the regulatory oversight in country. You, you hit the nail on the head. I think India has not been immune from some of the accounting scandals that have afflicted other parts of the world, and including the United States. And you and I are both aware of some of the most prominent corporate houses in India having, fall, having fallen victim, victim to this. What I'll tell clients uh, when we need to engage accounting services, and, and one thing that you and I discussed at the outset of this, of this conversation was reputational risk and, and general reputational equities. For me, what's huge is being sure that I can talk to as many people as I can. Look, India is a country that has, for example, the big four well-established. They also have a whole host of smaller ones. 
uh, in country as well. But as, as you are acutely aware, David, not all accounting companies um, are, are created equal, even the ones that are the most platinum and sterling brand names. Uh, you know, may not live up to the, the name that they that they carry because, again, of, of certain cultural or individualistic issues um, at that respective company in that country. And this is a long way of me saying that what I endeavor to do every time we need to engage an accounting company is look at their track record, talk to as many people as I can to see if they've engaged them and to say, what's your experience been like? Uh, there's obvious, obvious red flags. If there's instances where an accounting firm was engaged in the past, and through a simple public source search, I can ascertain that they have dropped the ball in some big way, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they go on my blacklist. That is a company or there's an accounting firm rather that I will never use if I know there's been some instance in the past where they have not performed where they needed to perform. And in India, they are very acutely sensitive to this idea of reputational harm and reputational risk, uh, the accounting firms themselves. And there was a time not too long ago where being a Western company or being a non-Indian company was enough. And that's no longer the case. We've seen the real emergence of, of Indian companies and accounting firms uh, materialize who, who, who can give these guys a run for their money and in a lot of ways understand the, the country better for obvious reasons. Uh, but, you know, for, from a client perspective, what I'll advise them is, you know, let, let us do the requisite due diligence. Think about hiring an accounting firm the same way that I would think about hiring a third party to perform some function in country for me. I'm going to talk to as many people as I can, go through as many of these checks that I can, conduct the requisite audits, talk to, talk to people who, who've used their competitors and, and really just compare notes and see if what we can conclude. And what ends up happening is and more often than not, I will say, certain trends and certain patterns will emerge. Uh, it's, it's not been my experience, for example, that I'm going to obtain wildly different assessments of, of accounting firm A versus B. And, and what I have found is that this is an area that because these folks are, are accountants and are supposed to be these very detail-oriented folks maintaining, again, fidelity to certain principles, that you just assume that if it's a name that you recognize, they must be good. And what I what I strongly caution um, listeners and to your audience is, is that's not true. Whether it's in India or anywhere else in the world, talk to people. Talk to people that have used these folks, and more often than not, that's going to provide the most effective tool to assess whether or not these are the right people for the job, and more importantly, whether or not this accounting firm is going to, you know, create versus mitigate more problems for you in whatever endeavor it is that you're that you're working on. So an important point to make, and uh, many of the people who will be listening to this podcast already know that there can be a very prominent uh, name of an audit firm on a particular practice, but in reality, it's it's a wholly separate operation. Um, very often, it reflects you know a potential roll-up strategy. Uh, can be known as that just a kind of name, PwC Singapore, which is not the same. PwC that you will deal with necessarily in the United States or in the UK, and that's the point you're uh, appropriately uh, making. And then the ancillary point is uh, for investors uh, who are thinking about committing capital uh, into a company or possibly purchasing the company, the importance of an independent quality of earnings analysis uh, cannot be stressed enough. Let me, uh, last, last uh, 
uh, question because you are a prolific writer about India and publisher, you know, in Forbes and other places in terms of um, blog and, and some very, very insightful analysis. As you, uh, predictions are always a tricky game, but um, as you think about the coming year of 2019, the types of trends that you are most focused on and you think, you know, the audience would be most interested in, uh, in, in at least monitoring. That's a great question. And, and you're right. Uh, predictions are always tough. And I always tell colleagues and clients that, uh, you know, in, in instances like this, your best is as good, your, your guess is as good as mine. But look, here's what I'll say. One is national elections are upcoming in India in 2019. They're, they're scheduled for May. That day could, can move, but, you know, Assuming everything goes as planned, they're going to take place in May of 2019. The reason I bring up the elections is because the elections are this omnipresent factor that is influencing a lot, if not most, of what's happening in India right now. And that includes policy decisions, that includes legal decisions, that includes India's foreign relations. And companies who are in India, companies who are thinking of getting into India, companies who are uh, somewhere on that spectrum should know that that elections are going to play a very potent role uh, in how the Modi government is going to move forward. Now, what that means is are we stuck in a holding pattern? Not necessarily, but a lot of a lot of the reasons, for example, that Modi was applauded uh, early on in his tenure for, again, striking out at deficits, trying to end certain subsidies, really changing the way business is conducted in India, we're going to start seeing some degree of change, and we've, we've already started seeing it. Uh, his only objective is to win re-election. And, and as a result, all the decisions that are being made right now, all the policies that are being implemented, all the laws that are being enacted, should really be viewed through that prism. The question that arises and that's most relevant for the audience and, and for folks like you and me, David, is should he win re-election, and all the, all the good and smart money is that he is going to win re-election, uh, what can we expect? Are we going to start seeing a bolder, uh, more adventurous prime minister who's willing to take more risks and willing to really confront the bureaucracy in a way that he, he has not yet done? When, when the Modi government came into power, people were expecting dramatic action, and what they've gotten so far instead, to a certain extent, um, is more gradual, if not incremental, progress. Uh, progress is still being made, but it may not be to the degree and scope that we've been looking for. Should he be reelected in 2019 and he serves another five-year term, at that point, we might see, again, the uh, impulse to embark on some greater campaigns, again, to really deliver on some of the promises that he's made with respect to the business and investment climate. And whether that means, again, further liberalization of, of foreign direct investment, whether it means more technology transfer, whether it means essentially doing those things that the government uh, has started to do so far but hasn't done yet. Infrastructure is another big one, for example. Initially, when the Modi government came into power, there was talk that there would be billions and billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure, uh, in public transportation, and other public works. These are key, key opportunities for American and other multinational companies, again, to come into India and be a part of that growth story. And India's growth is remarkable. There's no denying that it is amongst the fastest-growing economies in the world right now, particularly in Asia. 
and, and that portends well for those companies and for those businesses that want to be a part of that story. Uh, the challenge right now is that we're going to be seeing a, a lot of decisions being made on a, on a political basis um, as opposed to ones purely on a business and policy one, uh, at least until May of next year. So uh, I know you're on your way uh, to India now, so uh, we'll look forward to hearing more. And thank you for making time. But most importantly, that uh, the last observation, that no matter where you go in the world, politicians are politicians. And uh, they're going to lead by through political expediency, uh, possibly uh, triumphing over sound policy. It's uh, it's good to know possibly that the U.S. The US is exporting, you know, its influence uh, overseas. Um, That's so, exactly right. And, and look, what I yeah. tell clients and what I tell colleagues is this prime minister is someone who, 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 who sees businesses very favorably. Um, I think he's someone who has very conscientiously sought to conduct outreach and cultivate the business community, not just in India, but all over the world. And a lot of his foreign travel has been with the express and very obvious objective of bringing more investment into India. And what I, what I tell clients and what I'll tell you, and, and this, and if I can say it's a concluding, a concluding sentiment is this, is stick with it. That for those companies, those businesses interested in India, it's worth it. That there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of headache, it's not going to be easy, there's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic. But ultimately, given the way things have been going, given the way things are looking, uh, this is a country worth investing in, and, it, and it's worth that expenditure of both time and energy to do so. Great insights, and uh, thank you again, and more to come. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the Daily Risk Book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.